Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Dialogue, Gorgias, Part 2 Socrates asks the famous teacher of rhetoric, the sophist Gorgias, a question. Now I want you, Gorgias, to imagine that this question is asked of you by them and by me. What is that which, as you say, is the greatest good of man, and of which you are the creator? Answer us. That good, Socrates, replies Gorgias, which is truly the greatest, being that which gives to men freedom in their own persons, and to individuals the power of ruling over others in their several states. And what would you consider this to be? asks Socrates. What is there greater than the word which persuades the judges in the courts, or the senators in the council, or the citizens in the assembly, or at any other political meeting? If you have the power of uttering this word, you will have the physician your slave, and the trainer your slave, and the money-maker of whom you talk will be found to gather treasures not for himself, but for you who are able to speak and to persuade the multitude. Now I think, Gorgias, that you have very accurately explained what you conceive to be the art of rhetoric. And you mean to say, if I am not mistaken, that rhetoric is the artificer of persuasion, having this and no other business, and that this is her crown and end. Do you know any other effect of rhetoric over and above that of producing persuasion? No, the definition seems to me very fair, Socrates, for persuasion is the chief end of rhetoric. Then hear me, Gorgias. For I am quite sure that if there ever was a man who entered on the discussion of a matter from a pure love of knowing the truth, I am such a one, and I should say the same of you. What is coming, Socrates? I will tell you. I am very well aware that I do not know what, according to you, is the exact nature, or what are the topics of that persuasion of which you speak, and which is given by rhetoric although I have a suspicion about both the one and the other. And I am going to ask, what is this power of persuasion which is given by rhetoric, and about what? But why, if I have a suspicion, do I ask instead of telling you? Not for your sake, but in order that the argument may proceed in such a manner as is most likely to set forth the truth. And I would have you observe that I am right in asking this further question. If I asked, what sort of a painter is Zeuxis? And you said, the painter of figures. Should I not be right in asking, what kind of figures? And where do you find them? Certainly. And the reason for asking this second question would be, that there are other painters besides, who paint many other figures? True. But if there had been no one but Zeuxis who painted them, then you would have answered very well, Quite so. Now, I want to know about rhetoric in the same way. Is rhetoric the only art which brings persuasion? Or do other arts have the same effect? I mean to say, does he who teaches anything persuade men of that which he teaches, or not? He persuades, Socrates. There can be no mistake about that. Again, 
If we take the arts of which we were just now speaking, do not arithmetic and the arithmeticians teach us the properties of number? Certainly. And therefore persuade us of them? Yes. Then arithmetic, as well as rhetoric, is an artificer of persuasion? Clearly. And if anyone asks us what sort of persuasion and about what, we shall answer, persuasion which teaches the quantity of odd and even. And we shall be able to show that all the other arts of which we were just now speaking are artificers of persuasion, and of what sort, and about what. Very true. Then rhetoric is not the only artificer of persuasion? True. Seeing then that not only rhetoric works by persuasion, but that other arts do the same, as in the case of the painter, a question has arisen which is a very fair one. Of what persuasion is rhetoric the artificer, and about what? Is not that a fair way of putting the question? I think so. Then, if you approve the question, Gorgias, what is the answer? I answer, Socrates, that rhetoric is the art of persuasion in courts of law and other assemblies, as I was just now saying, and about the just and unjust. And that, Gorgias, was what I was suspecting to be your notion. Yet I would not have you wonder if, by and by, I am found repeating a seemingly plain question. For I ask not in order to confute you, but as I was saying, that the argument may proceed consecutively, and that we may not get the habit of anticipating and suspecting the meaning of one another's words. I would have you develop your own views in your own way, whatever may be your hypothesis. I think that you are quite right, Socrates. Then let me raise another question. There is such a thing as having learned? Yes. And is there also having believed? Yes. And is the having learned the same as having believed? And are learning and belief the same things? In my judgment, Socrates, they are not the same. And your judgment is right, as you may ascertain in this way. If a person were to say to you, Is there, Gorgias, a false belief as well as a true? You would reply, if I am not mistaken, that there is. Yes. Well, but is there a false knowledge as well as a true? No. No, indeed. And this again proves that knowledge and belief differ. Very true. And yet those who have learned as well as those who have believed are persuaded. Just so. Shall we then assume two sorts of persuasion? One which is the source of belief without knowledge, as the other is of knowledge. By all means. And which sort of persuasion does rhetoric create in courts of law and other assemblies about the just and unjust? The sort of persuasion which gives belief without knowledge, or that which gives knowledge? Clearly, Socrates, that which only gives belief. Then rhetoric, as would appear, is the artificer of a persuasion which creates belief about the just and unjust, but gives no instruction about them? True. And the rhetorician does not instruct the courts of law or other assemblies about things just and unjust, but he creates belief about them. For no one can be supposed to instruct such a vast multitude about such high matters in a short time? Certainly not. Come then, and let us see what we really mean about rhetoric. For I do not know what my own meaning is as yet. 
When the assembly meets to elect a physician, or a shipwright, or any other craftsman, will the rhetorician be taken into counsel? Surely not, for at every election he ought to be chosen who is most skilled. And again, when walls have to be built, or harbors, or docks to be constructed, not the rhetorician, but the master workman will advise. Or when generals have to be chosen, and an order of battle arranged, or a position taken, then the military will advise and not the rhetoricians. What do you say, Gorgias? Since you profess to be a rhetorician and a maker of rhetoricians, I cannot do better than learn the nature of your art from you. And here let me assure you that I have your interest in view as well as my own. For likely enough, some one or other of the young men present might desire to become your pupil. And in fact, I see some, and a good many too, who have this wish. But they would be too modest to question you. And therefore, when you are interrogated by me, I would have you imagine that you are interrogated by them. What is the use of coming to you, Gorgias? they will say. About what will you teach us to advise the state? About the just and unjust only? Or about those other things also which Socrates has just mentioned? How will you answer them? I like your way of leading us on, Socrates, and I will endeavor to reveal to you the whole nature of rhetoric. You must have heard, I think, that the docks and the walls of the Athenians and the plan of the harbor were devised in accordance with the counsels partly of Themistocles and partly of Pericles, and not at the suggestion of the builders. Such is the tradition, Gorgias, about Themistocles, and I myself heard the speech of Pericles when he advised us about the middle wall. And you will observe, Socrates, that when a decision has to be given in such matters, the rhetoricians are the advisers. They are the men who win their point. I had that in my admiring mind, Gorgias, when I asked what is the nature of rhetoric, which always appears to me, when I look at the matter in this way, to be a marvel of greatness. A marvel indeed, Socrates, if you only knew how rhetoric comprehends and holds under her sway all the inferior arts. Let me offer you a striking example of this. On several occasions I have been with my brother Herodicus, or some other physician, to see one of his patients, who would not allow the physician to give him medicine, or apply the knife or hot iron to him. And I have persuaded him to do for me what he would not do for the physician, just by the use of rhetoric. And I say that if a rhetorician and a physician were to go to any city, and had there to argue in the ecclesia, or any other assembly as to which of them should be elected state physician, the physician would have no chance. But he who could speak would be chosen if he wished. And in a contest with a man of any other profession, the rhetorician more than anyone would have the power of getting himself chosen, for he can speak more persuasively to the multitude than any of them, and on any subject. Such is the nature and power of the art of rhetoric. And yet, Socrates, rhetoric should be used like any other competitive art, not against everybody. The rhetorician ought not to abuse his strength any more than a pugilist or a pancreatist or other master of fence, because he has powers which are more than a match either for friend or enemy. He ought not, therefore, to strike, stab, or slay his friends. Suppose a man to have been trained in the palestra and to be a skillful boxer. 
he in the fullness of his strength goes and strikes his father or mother or one of his familiars or friends. But that is no reason why the trainers or fencing masters should be held in detestation or banished from the city. Surely not. For they taught their art for a good purpose, to be used against enemies and evildoers, in self-defense, not in aggression. And others have perverted their instructions, and turned to a bad use their own strength and skill. But not on this account are the teachers bad. Neither is the art in fault, or bad in itself. I should rather say that those who make a bad use of the art are to blame. And the same argument holds good of rhetoric. For the rhetorician can speak against all men, and upon any subject. In short, he can persuade the multitude better than any other man of anything which he pleases. But he should not therefore seek to defraud the physician, or any other artist of his reputation, merely because he has the power. He ought to use rhetoric fairly, as he would also use his athletic powers. And if, after having become a rhetorician, he makes a bad use of his strength and skill, his instructor surely ought not, on that account, to be held in detestation or banished. For he was intended by his teacher to make a good use of his instructions, but he abuses them. And therefore, he is the person who ought to be held in detestation, banished and put to death, and not his instructor. You, Gorgias, like myself, have had great experience of disputations, and you must have observed, I think, that they do not always terminate in mutual edification, or in the definition by either party of the subjects which they are discussing. But disagreements are apt to arise. Somebody says that another has not spoken truly or clearly, and then they get into a passion and begin to quarrel, both parties conceiving that their opponents are arguing from personal feeling only and jealousy of themselves, not from any interest in the question at issue. And sometimes they will go on abusing one another until the company at last are quite vexed at themselves for ever listening to such fellows. Why do I say this? Why? because I cannot help feeling that you are now saying what is not quite consistent or accordant with what you were saying at first about rhetoric. And I am afraid to point this out to you, lest you should think that I have some animosity against you, and that I speak, not for the sake of discovering the truth, but from jealousy of you. Now, if you are one of my sort, I should like to cross-examine you. But if not, I will let you alone. And what is my sort, you will ask? I am one of those who are very willing to be refuted if I say anything which is not true, and very willing to refute anyone else who says what is not true, and quite as ready to be refuted as to refute. For I hold that this is the greater gain of the two, just as the gain is greater of being cured of a very great evil than of curing another. For I imagine that there is no evil which a man can endure so great as an erroneous opinion about the matters of which we are speaking. And if you claim to be one of my sort, let us have the discussion out. But if you would rather have done no matter, let us make an end of it. I should say, Socrates, that I am quite the man whom you indicate. But perhaps we ought to consider the audience, for before you came I had already given a long exhibition and if we proceed, the argument may run on to a great length, and therefore I think that we should consider 
whether we may not be detaining some part of the company when they are wanting to do something else. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>